Seven letters to seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3. Book of Revelation is an exciting study. It's the only book of the Bible with the audacity to say, read me, I'm special. It's the only book of the Bible that offers, or commits, I should say, to a blessing to the hearer and the reader. And it's interesting that um, as you study the book of Revelation, there are many reasons it's a blessing, but probably the main one, one of the main ones, is that to pursue the signs and indicators and things within the book, it takes you into every other book of the Bible. The book, the book of Revelation presumes you have a command of the rest of the Scripture. In fact, there's probably no greater evidence of the integrity of design. These 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years we call the Bible that have a singular source, of course, outside the time domain. And that is indeed what is demonstrated by this remarkable book. But as you study the book of Revelation, it's also the book, the only book of the Bible I know, that has a divinely inspired outline of the book. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the entire book is divided into three parts. Jesus says to John, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Sort of a past, present, and future type of structure. The things which thou hast seen clearly refers to chapter 1, the vision that had just been completed by the time you get to verse 19 of chapter 1. The second section, write the things which are, the things which existed at that time, which clearly is chapter 2 and 3. These seven churches were literal churches at that time. And there are seven letters from Jesus Christ to each of those seven churches that make up chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then the third section is write the things which shall be metatauta, that is, after these things. And chapter 4, verse 1 starts the largest but final section of the book, which goes from essentially from there to the end. Now, as you study the book of Revelation, there's many, many fascinating things that will leap out at you, many insights. But as you understand the book more carefully, more thoroughly, you begin to realize that there are two chapters that have the most meaning to you and I. There are two chapters that are the richest, fullest, most relevant to ourselves and our times, our lives, and that's chapters 2 and 3. So while uh, the book is a very, very exciting book in many ways, we happen to be in that portion of the book that can be the richest, most rewarding of them all, chapters 2 and 3. Seven letters to seven churches. As we study these seven letters, we discover they have at least four levels of meaning. The first level of meaning I'll call local, for lack of a better term. They were literal churches at that time. Some scholars debated that, but through the archaeological work of Sir William Ramsey, they've each been excavated, and it turns out that we know quite a bit about them. And indeed, it would appear they each had local specific problems that, do, that are addressed in each of the seven letters. So they, had, they were literal churches at that time. But the second level of meaning, we also discover that each letter has a, a particular theme. One other thing to notice about the letters, it's interesting that virtually all seven of those churches had a misperception of themselves. One of the things you learn from these seven letters, seven churches, is that churches apparently really generally don't know where they stand. They may have one impression, Jesus Christ has a different one. And one thing we learn from this is that in the, in the case of these seven churches, they each were in for some surprises. And that should give us a great deal of humility as we try to measure our own churches. There are things that we are doing, we think we're doing wrong that may not be as bad as we think, and there are things that we think we're great at that may be wrong. In other words, just recognize that Jesus' perception may be quite different, and that's one very illuminating aspect. So 
It turns out, by the way, each of the seven letters has a particular emphasis, a particular theme, a particular issue. And as you study the letter, you discover that everything in the letter supports that theme. It turns out that the title that Jesus chooses of himself relates to that letter's theme. You discover that the theme throughout the letter, the good news, the bad news, the issues, are tied to that particular theme. Even the meaning of the name of the church turns out, strangely, to, to illuminate that theme. So the first point is, is that each of these seven letters apply to literal churches. Secondly, it applies to churches in general. There's a phrase in each of the letters. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. In other words, and each seven of the seven letters were sent to all seven churches. So no matter what church you come from, those letters have an impact on us. I'm going to suggest to you that there's elements of all seven of those churches in each of the churches we come from. In this assembly we have here, we have many, many people, including some pastors from many of the churches in the area. And so uh, we'll have something in these letters to offend everyone. There's a third level of meaning. That same phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that hath an ear. I didn't make a thorough check, but I think everyone that entered in this gathering this evening has an earlobe, right? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. In other words, every one of us in this room can be blessed by each of the seven letters. There's a tendency of us to look critically at the criticized churches and to sort of identify ourselves with the praised churches. No, no. All of us, individually, can learn from all seven letters. And that's probably one of the most important benefits of the study of the book of Revelation, to get that in perspective. So we have a local, we have an admonitory, and we have a homiletic or personal application. There is a fourth level of meaning that fascinates people that get into this. It also turns out, strangely, that these seven letters lay out the history of the church. It shouldn't surprise us. The book of Acts covers about 30 years. The church has been around for almost two millennia. So it's not surprising that God would, uh, that somewhere in the scripture we'd have that gap filled. And it would seem that uh, uh, Revelation, as a continuation of the book of Acts, lays out a prophetic overview of the church from the first century all the way to the end. And that gets to be more speculative. Not everybody holds that view, and you can, all of us can decide for ourselves as we go, but I certainly will present it to you for your own uh, consideration and, and exploration. It's interesting that if the letters were in any other order, it wouldn't work. In the order they're presented, they are, in fact, descriptive of uh, the history of the church. The first letter was the letter of the Church of Ephesus, which, of course, is the church that was very good on keeping heresies outside the church, but in fact, in so doing, lost their first love. They're so busy uh, on the business of the king, they didn't have time for the king. And so the book of Ephesus is, is a call to devotion, relationship. It doesn't disparage the heresy hunters, but it points out that that can come at a cost, and apparently didn't in, the book in, the, in, the, in Ephesus. And so we dwelt with the, the, that particular church at that time. The name Ephesus means darling or loved one, interestingly enough. second church was Smyrna. And all through the, church, the letter of the church of Smyrna, we have the power of death. Death, 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 all the way through the thing. And even the name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which is... A ointment used for embalming. 
And we begin to realize that the letter to Smyrna was the letter to the church that was enduring, especially enduring, persecution, the persecuted church. And indeed, uh, that was from Nero on, we had major, major uh, abuse by the, the government at that time of the church in that period, egged on by the envy of the Jewish establishment. We have the period there that, of, of persecution of the church. But that finally brings us to the third letter. This is all by a quick review. Letter to Pergamos. And this seems to speak of the time when the church became married to the world. What Satan couldn't accomplish by persecuting the church, the more he persecuted it, the more it grew, the more it spread. So it would seem that Satan got smarter, if you would, and married the church. And we have that whole peculiar history when Constantine becomes a Christian, it would seem, and makes the Christian uh, faith suddenly no longer illegal, but he himself becomes a Christian and and he promotes Christians to court. And we have the marriage, if you will, of the church with the world. The word Pergamos means mixed marriage. Per is pervert or, or perturbation or whatever. And uh, gammy is uh, like bigamy or monogamy or whatever. The Greek roots are still in our, even in our language, in effect. The word Pergamos means mixed marriage. And interestingly enough, that does indeed seem to be uh, the thrust of that letter. And that brings us to tonight's particular one. The church at Thyatira. So let's start by reading the the letter itself, and then we'll learn a little bit about Thyatira. Starting at verse 18, we'll continue to the end of the chapter. These things, that's the way each of these letters start. These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass or bronze. I know thy works in charity and service and faith and patience in thy works, and the last to me more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she, and she repented not. Behold, I, I will cast her into a bed... And them that committed adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that ye which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, as I have received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is the longest letter, the fullest letter. Much here. A lot of material here. Also, you'll notice that there's a number of structural things that will catch your attention as we plunge into the letter to Thyatira. But let's first of all understand that it really was a specific place called Thyatira. The road from Istanbul to Izmir, Smyrna if you will, runs through the small and unattractive town of Akhazar, about 30,000 population. 
which now occupies the, uh, uh, the place where once stood the very important military city of Thyatira. In the New Testament period, it stood at the junction of three main roads, one leading to Pergamos, one to Sardis, and one to Smyrna. The naming of the, the town is kind of interesting. It originally was a Lydian town bearing the name of Pelopia, but then it was named Semiramis, which we'll come back to, if you may if you will, the concert of Nimrod and Babylon. So that's an interesting uh, name out of the occult, out of, out of paganism. And then uh, Hippia. It was then taken by the Persians, and when you get to the time of Alexander, it became a possession of uh, Lysimachus, one of his four generals. And uh, in 301 B.C., however, Lysimachus was defeated by his rival, Seleucus I, whose name was Nicator, uh, and thus it became part of Syria at that time. And the city was converted to a frontier fortress to guard the way to Pergamos. So it became a primary military site. Kind of interesting, Nicator is the one that actually named the city then, his fourth name, Thyatira, which comes from the Greek word Thyatira, which means daughter. Daughter. There are a number of, uh, depending what roots you use, the, the name can mean several different things. But from the Greek intention, the intent of the name was he had just been informed that a daughter had been born to him, so he named the town Thyatira. It's interesting when you see that, the name can have so many different implications. It was called Semiramis, which was the queen of Babylon, and that's going to be important later on from the pagan worship side. The fact this name daughter is kind of interesting because in the letter itself, Jesus himself uses an idiom of Jezebel, which we'll explore shortly. So we'll find out what that all really ends up. There are some scholars that uh, tie the roots that make up the word to the, ter- the concept of continual sacrifice, continuing sacrifice, and that'll, uh, that we'll, we'll talk about that as we develop a little further. So Thyatira uh, uh, became commercially important because of its uh, location on these major roads, and from that it developed a, it became a center for trade guilds. In that economy, if you were a tradesman of any kind, there was a guild you needed to join to be part of. So it's sort of probably analogous to some sense to a labor union, except these guilds were um, uh, really compulsory if you were going to uh, apply a trade. Uh, they were very, very uh, uh, highly organized corporate bodies having all kinds of benefits, and uh, they took all kinds of actions to protect their interests and they owned considerable property. And each guild was under the patronage of a pagan deity, and all the proceedings and the feasts were all in homage to their patron deity. And, of course, a Christian tradesman now had a huge dilemma. If he didn't belong to the trade guild, he couldn't survive. If he did belong to the trade guild, he found himself caught up in all this pagan worship. So it's a major issue for in that day. And one of the problems that a believer had is how strict did he have to be with himself? Could he go along with this and just shrug it off as a practical requirement of his day and age? Or was he going to be strict and withdraw and and refuse? And it was in effect, strangely enough, the believer in that day had a practical choice to make whether for Christ or for the world. And so it was a real dilemma. Thyatira was also known for its dyes, particularly purple, which was really scarlet rather than purple. It derived from matter root, which is prolific in the area, but there's also, you can get it from Urex, which is a shellfish. A drop of dye from its throat is a very, very highly valued form of dye. And uh, it turns out, you may recall, in Acts 16, Paul encounters Lydia, who was a very wealthy sales rep, living in Philippi, for the uh, Thyatirans, if you will, for, the, for their purple dye. Now, to get ahead of this, so you, so you can sort of see where this is all heading, many scholars suggest that Thyatira, in its, hist- in its prophetic sense, portrays 
the um, medieval church from the period of about 600 to 1500 A.D. You look at Ephesus as the first century. You look at Smyrna as the era of the persecutions of the Caesars. And then uh, Pergamus with Constantine and all of that. And, and uh, Thyatira, the subsequent period. We'll, we'll back into that after we've had a chance to examine the letter. A couple other background things you might be interested to know is that um, in Thyatira, the, the Chaldean priest who interpreted the esoteric doctrines of the Babylonian mysteries was called Peter, which means interpreter. In term, I thought that's kind of interesting. He wore an insignia of two keys, the keys of Janus and Sibylle, and these two keys still appear on the heraldry of the Vatican today. Kind of interesting. Now, the key thing we're going to discover in the, the danger to the church at Thyatira did not arise because of the imperial persecutions of Rome. They did not arise from the Jewish animosities, that we, the rivalry that we talk so much about, the book of Acts deals with so aggressively. It really rose from within the church itself. And that's all the more serious. As we study the church, whether it's in prophecy or just the history of the church itself uh, from secular sources, it's interesting that the church is never injured from the outside, spiritually speaking. It's always injured from the inside. And that's a very interesting thing to learn. Uh, The church, through all these, and it went through many, many phases of persecution. Uh, And it generally is a time of spiritual renewal. The place where, places where the churches get in trouble is from the inside out, through heresies, false doctrine, and, and leaving the one about which it all has to do, Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll see that manifested several ways. Well, so much for the background uh, materials. Let's just jump right on in and take a look at the letter in more detail. Verse 18 of chapter 2 of Revelation, And unto the angel... Of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. It's interesting that this is the title Jesus uses of himself, the Son of God. Now that sounds so familiar to us, we may miss the point. First of all, this is the only place it appears in the book of Revelation. Son of God. What what I want you to think about when you see this all through the scripture, always watch for what's not mentioned. Or watch what it might be in juxtaposition with, you see. Is it the Son of God in contrast to the Queen of Heaven? See, that's what Semiramis was, or claimed to be, see. Now, it's interesting, too, uh, this is a place, I won't take the time here to go into it because we've got other material to cover, but remember where this appears in the Gospel. And that's at Peter's Confession, Matthew 16 at Philippi. Thou art the, you know, the, the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 16, reviewed at your leisure. Now, this is the central le- uh, letter of the seven, but it's the one in which Jesus Christ asserts his power and authority. That's not surprising, and yet that implies that maybe that's where the challenge was. So why is he picking, of all the titles, why is he picking that one? And uh, we'll find out. Now, it portrays him with eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And we covered that in chapter 1. Those are idioms that were used in chapter 1. And uh, both the fire and the brass speaking of judgment. Fire speaking of judgment. And brass was the metal that could sustain fire, and it was Levitically used of altars and so forth. It, was, it speaks of judgment. So this, as you get familiar with Levitical symbols, when you hear that, it strikes a firm 
somber note. But anyway, he moved, that's the title he uses. Now he goes to his report card, and his first element in uh, virtually all the letters is the good news. And by the way, we're going to be talking a lot about Thyatira in negative terms before we're through this evening. Let's not miss how strong a positive statement is made here by Jesus Christ. He says, I know thy works. Each of these letters says, I know thy works. He's not guessing, he knows. He's here among us. We see him in the midst of the seven lampstands. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. In other words, it gets better later. He's fully informed of our actions and he's giving them a very positive, positive remark. We should always remember that. I wish we could always remember that he knows exactly what's going on. I think I shared with you the little boy that nervously asked his father, can God see us all the time? And the father had a very creative answer, I thought. He says, Jesus loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. Works, love, faith, service, faith, patience, works. That's kind of exciting. Verse 20, notwithstanding, and now we get to the bad news. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, this is, uh, in the local sense, not surprising. Apparently, there was some gal that was promoting the very compromises that were luring the, 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 uh, the members of the church into big trouble. Fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. The whole problem, all the celebrations in that day involved meats and things that uh, prior and during were, in effect, offered to idols and gave a big conflict to Christians at the time. And this gal was promoting that. Now, it's interesting that the chief sin of the church at Thyatira, which was fatal, incidentally, simply consisted of failing to raise a protest against her. You stop and think about that. See, you suffer that woman Jezebel, which does all these things. In other words, their, their chief sin was they, they failed to raise a protest against this woman who claimed to be a prophetess and led them into... Uh, into uh, Doctrine's practice. Now, you remember, you remember in the book of Acts, in the Council of Jerusalem, when they were wondering, you know, they were resting over this issue, does a Gentile have to become a Jew to be saved? And of course, the council said no, but they, as long as they do what? Abstain from fornication and don't eat meat offered to idols. Those are the only con- two constraints. They didn't lay the law down on the, the Gentiles. You remember James's response in Acts 15. Refresh your memory on Acts 15 as background sometime. And, but it's interesting that the very two things that were prohibited are the things that are problems here. But now, we really won't understand, just as we did not really understand, we wouldn't really understand uh, the, the uh, idea of Balak and Balaam of the previous letter that we looked at last time. You really won't understand what the tone of the letter is here unless you understand Jezebel. Now, was there a, literally a woman by the name of Jezebel, Thyatira in church? Who knows? There might have been, or Jesus was using the term idiomatically 
Because anyone that knows their Old Testament, the, the name Jezebel is a very, very prominent player there with a very, very definitive character and role. Jezebel in the Old Testament was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidon. He was the priest of Astarte. He murdered his predecessor, Phelez, to seize the throne. Now, she was married, the daughter of this Phoenician king, to Ahab in order to seal a profitable trade alliance between Israel and Phoenicia. That's the background there. This was, of course, a, quote, reasonable compromise, right? Israel was supposed to be separate, but uh, they, they didn't. Now, Jezebel, marrying King Ahab of Israel brings with her her religious background. She was a worshiper, in fact, a priestess of Baal and Astarte. Now, these ideas, of course, track back to Babylon. We talked a lot about that last time. It'll keep coming up. And the time of Jezebel and Ahab turns out to usher in one of the worst periods in the entire Old Testament, spiritually. And she actually doesn't just introduce idolatry, she attempts to wipe out the prophets of Yahweh or Jehovah or however you want to pronounce it. Now, what we might do here is hold your place and let's pop back and get a little background. Turn to First Kings 16. Uh, let's just pick it about verse 30. First Kings 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all who were before him. That's quite a statement. In other words, Ahab on his own, without her help, was bad news. It came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Bear in mind, he's the king of the northern kingdom after the civil war, so we're talking about the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahab made an idol, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's quite a statement. But there it is. It's pretty crisp, pretty straightforward. And we talk more about him, but I'd like to... Let's go over to chapter 18. And uh, we have Elijah here. Oh, pick, just to pick up a few verses to get the flavor of the Elijah thing, about verse 11, and now, thou mayest, uh, and now thou sayest, Go tell my Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from here, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee where I know not. So when I come and tell Ahab that he cannot find thee, he will slay me, but I, thy servant, fear the Lord, and from my youth. Verse 13 is where I'm headed. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And he goes on. Just an allusion to Jezebel's aggressive. She's the queen. She's not a passive queen. She's quite authoritative. In fact, one of the things you're going to want to know before we go on is a particular incident that I believe is extremely revealing. And I want to go into it in depth. So let's... Uh, let's just jump right on into chapter 21. There's an incident that occurs in the Old Testament about Naboth's vineyard. I want you to recognize the methodology we're trying to use here. You take the idiom from the book of Revelation, whatever it might be, and with a concordance, find out wherever it appears and see how it's used and find out what's going on. Now, one of the things that in theory we should be doing is try to really grasp and understand the whole career of Jezebel. We won't have time for that. Let's just focus on one, what I believe, a very revealing insight. In chapter 21, 1 Kings 21, it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard 
which was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, give me, the, give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near to my house, and I will give thee for, for, give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. So Ahab goes to Naboth. He wants this thing. He's willing to trade him something better for it or buy it from him. You know, like name your price, so to speak. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Now, there's many reasons he could say that. One is he might just like it and he, cho- he, he chose to decline. There's also, it turns out, in the Torah, it should stay in the family. And that could be even, there's even other aspects to this. But well, let's not badger that, keep moving. And Ahab came unto the house, sullen and displeased because of the word of which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down upon his bed and turned away from his face and would eat no food. In other words, Ahab is a spoiled brat. <laughs> He's pouting. But Jezebel, verse 5, his wife came to him and said unto him, why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no food? And he said unto her, Because I spoke with Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me my vineyard for money, or else, please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee for my vineyard. Give thee my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said unto the king, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat food, and let thy heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She's going to fix it. Who's running things now? He or she. Interesting, right there, okay. I don't think I'm going to go down that road too far. That's good. No, he's the king. He's the king. But she's taken over. Don't sweat it, guy. I'll, take, I'll, I'll fix this. Notice her methodology. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and the nobles who were in this city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, worthless fellows, before him to bear witness against him saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king. And then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles who were in the inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto him, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth on high among the people, and then came in two men, worthless fellows, sat before him, and the worthless men witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. And they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to him, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab arose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and take possession of it. Little incident, First Kings 21. But Jesus Christ uses the idiom of Jezebel to describe the, the situation in Thyatira. Now you're beginning to see one of the many reasons why scholars say, gee, that's kind of interesting. Here, through the method of what, if you'll excuse the expression, I'll call an inquisition, they falsely accuse and condemn to death in order to gain property. And there you have the history of the medieval church throughout a thousand-year period, including the Dark Ages, isn't it? Interesting. Vivid, vivid uh, uh, layout of it.
because of the time, I'll spare you going through my... I usually can work into this part of the study one of my favorite scenes. We skip one from 16 to 21. In chapter 18, of course, we have the incredible event of Mount Carmel. I could never understand how Cecil B. DeMille, before he died, failed to do a movie about Mount Carmel. He seemed to have a, a knack for doing biblical epics with great accuracy and research. It would have been, I think that this was his kind of chapter. You all know the story about how Elijah challenges the priests of Jezebel, the priests of Baal. And you golfers, if you're any golfers here? Any golfers in here? You know what a handicap is. Okay, well, that's a, if you're a golfer, you want to read carefully how Elijah uh, gives himself a handicap and, and, and goes through all of that. And, of course, the whole event on Mount Carmel is incredible. How they built the two altars and so forth. And whoever's God, let him touch off the altars. So the priests of Baal build their altar and they spend all half a day dancing and cutting themselves and doing all their ritualistic things. And while they're doing all that, Elijah is taunting them. So maybe you got to yell louder. He can't hear you. It must be hard of hearing. And then in your King James there, it says, maybe he's pursuing. What the Hebrew actor says, maybe he's taking a leak. But somehow they keep praying and doing all this stuff. That's what it says. Check me out. And, uh, and of course, about noontime, they finally, nothing happens. So he patiently takes some stones, builds his altar. But part that I like it, it puts a trench about. What I like about it, he douses his altar three times with water, like he's giving himself a handicap. You know, I like that. And then he says, "Gather around," and, and uh, fire comes down, of course, and you know, takes the offering, and and so Elijah's the winner. But then, what does he do with his following? He says, "Okay, now you kill the 450 priests of Jezebel," and they do. They played rough in those days. Didn't mess around. You'll want to, as you do your background for this chapter, you may want to include chapter 18, all that, as part of it. But uh, in any case, here we have, we find the adversaries of God. In, Je- in Jeremiah 7:18 and Jeremiah 44, you find references to the Queen of Heaven in its Babylonian illusions. This concept of the Queen of Heaven is a Babylonian concept. We're going to find uh, other comments here as we go further. The deep things of Satan are alluded to in this, in this letter. The esoteric mysteries of the Babylonian cults. In Judges 2 and 10, in 1 Samuel 31 and 1 Kings 11, you'll find Ashtoreth mentioned. All these things, we could spend a lot of time going into the pagan idolatry that had its foundation in, in Babylon. And then as, the, as Babylon gets conquered by the Persians, the priesthood always follows the money. So they move to Pergamos. And then when Rome rises after the Greeks and the the Persians and Rome rises to power, this priesthood, this cult center moves to Rome. And everything we associate with pagan Rome has its roots in Babylon. Now, don't get confused. Most each of these deities and things have have not only Chaldean names, they have Persian, Greek, and Latin names, depending on what area you're talking about. The same, whether it's Astarte or or Venus or whatever, is just name-calling in terms of what language you're making reference to. But the same concepts, the same pagan things are are there. Uh, In Deuteronomy 16 and elsewhere, throughout the Bible, you find them always speaking of the groves. God instructed them to tear down the groves. The groves were not just trees of groves, they were phallic symbols. And all these uh, worship, uh, uh, this uh, pagan worship was involved with fertility, sexual orgies, and what have you. The abomination of of the Sidonians, specifically Jezebel, in 2 Kings 23, Ezekiel 36, elsewhere. 
I'll just make a note now. We'll cover this more thoroughly. But I'm going, I'm just warning you in advance, I'm going to suggest a linkage between Jezebel and the woman with the leaven in Matthew 13. But I want to leave that for a subsequent study. This pagan worship that characterized pagan Rome brings us to about 378 A.D., when the bishop of Rome, one Damasus, took the office of Pontifex Maximus, that was a Babylonian title, part of this pagan worship, the high priest of the Babylonian religion, that was previously the prerogative of the emperor of Rome. The emperor carried those titles. But in 378 AD, he took it upon himself, thus combining the Christian church, he's bishop of Rome, with the pagan religion. And from that day on, they're never separated. We're going to go through some history here subsequently, but these various beliefs and things of the pagan Babylonian pagan system get repackaged, relabeled, but it's basically just nomenclature. So uh, getting back anyway to uh, Jezebel, let's pick up our, our letter. We get down to what, verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. Now let me deal with this term fornication. It's really a pun of sorts, because indeed those pagan, that pagan worship involved temple prostitutes, it involved sexual excesses of all kinds. So indeed, literally, it's true. But the term fornication in the Scripture also is used spiritually because they are uh, having intercourse with a false god in, in contrast to the true god. So there's a concept of spiritual fornication. I'm sure it's familiar to you if you've done a, a much uh, biblical reading. But you should understand there's Holy Spirit's, in a sense, doing, indulging a pun here. The word fornication means both. On the one hand, of course, in the days of Jezebel and all that, it was literal fornication. But what's actually at issue here, that's even the heavier issue, is the spiritual aspect of it. But in any case, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Verse 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Ooh, that's a phrase that hits our ears, doesn't it? Except they repent of their deeds. Uh, again, the word adultery. See, the whole concept that you, you find all through the book of Hosea and elsewhere, God speaks of Israel as going whoring after false gods. The relationship between Israel and her God is made by analogy, the husband and wife. And unfaithfulness, the terms for unfaithfulness between husband and wife, are the terms God is using in terms of describing the relationship between the God of Israel and Israel. And even when you get to Jesus Christ and the church, you speak of the virgin bride, the same idioms obtained. And Ephesians 5 is, of course, the classic reference which described the relationship between husband and wife and makes it analogous to the relationship of Christ and the church. So, just as the church is to hold Christ preeminent in all things, so Paul's uh, expression to the wife's relationship with the husband. Conversely, just as Christ gave himself for the church, so the husband is to give himself totally over for the wife. So the relationship that's described there is, is uh, uh, one of the most important uh, things for us to understand. He says here that he will. He, he, there is a promise in the letter to Thyatira that unless they repent, they will be cast into the great tribulation. Very express here. It's amazing how many people miss that. They all get hung up with Philadelphia, which we'll get into. Finally, but here there's a promise that they will be cast into great tribulation. The implication is if they repent, they won't be. Well, I thought a whole church is going through the great tribulation. I don't believe so, for lots of reasons we'll cover later. But here's one of the reasons, if I was just reading this, I'd begin to realize that, gee, 
The church, only the unrepentant will go in the tribulation of the church. Whew, that's kind of interesting. Now, one of the other things we'll discover is the letter to Thyatira is the first of the seven that mentions the second coming. Now, this is probably one place where I can sort of anticipate something we're going to get to in a minute. If you've looked at the structure, your outlines, you'll notice that the first three letters have the promise to the overcomer as sort of a P.S. If we take this phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, as the closure of the letter, the first three letters have the promise to the overcomer on the outside. But from Thyatira on, the promise to the overcomer is brought into the body of the letter. Now, that can be just accidental. I don't think so. Or it's there for some significant reason, which I believe it is. Then the question is, what's the significance of it? That's up to you. I personally believe that the first three letters were complete. I'm speaking of periods of time that are virtually complete. And I think the last four endure to the end. They, they start sequentially but endure in parallel. Because I believe Thyatira, the first of the four, has a promise to go into the tribulation. We'll talk about Sardis when we get there. Laodicea certainly does. There's one of the four that gets pulled out before the Great Tribulation. We'll deal with that when we get there. But uh, and that, that's a view. Not everybody holds a view. Many good scholars don't. But we'll show you why we do as we get into that. But it's interesting that Thyatira has a very interesting express promise. In verse 23, oh, incidentally, this is also probably a place to mention that the Jezebel, incidentally, really gets hers. In 2 Kings 9, you'll discover, if you take the trouble, that uh, her end is pretty disastrous. We're going to talk about her end prophetically when we get to Revelation 17. Because I believe the woman that rides the beast is, in effect... The same thing in view here. Okay, so we're not through, even when we finish tonight with Thyatira and move on, um, we're not through with Jezebel, because we're, she's going to come up in effect when we jump into Revelation 17. But verse 23, and God, uh, Jesus continues, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins in the hearts. And I will give every to, to, unto every one of you according to your works. Now, the reins and hearts, we find many places. In, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, it's Yahweh that is the only one that searches the hearts. So when Jesus says, I am he that reigns the hearts, incidentally, it's another of the many declarations that he is Yahweh. He, in John 8, he claims to be the voice of the burning bush. Here is another place where, in effect, you can get that identity. But moving on, Romans 8, 27. We all know Romans 8, 28. Most of us have it tabbed in our Bibles to check every day. All things work together for good. Gee, I hope it's still there, you know. The verse before that also speaks of the same issue. I will give unto every one of you according to your works, in contrast to his works. So that's a, this a verse 23, like the rest of this whole this part of the passage, is very heavy stuff. But verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, ooh, see what they're into by mixing these pagan ideas, is Satan worship, whether they know it or not. 
In fact, the depths of Satan, the occult, mixed up in biblical terms. As many as have not this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. In other words, in each of the churches, he's got some good news and some bad news and an exhortation. The exhortation to those that are in Thyatira is, as many as have not this doctrine, simply, I won't put anything else on, just hang on to that which you have. That's what he's saying. Now, you do get the impression that only a remnant survives. In other words, not the whole church, it's the few in there that haven't this doctrine that's prevalent in Thyatira. You see how different this is from the first, second, and third letters? Very different. This church had an evil for which there was no remedy. Now, there's a small play on words here, by the way. He says, uh, the depths of Satan and burden. The word depths is bathos in the Greek, the deep things of Satan. As in, incidentally, in contrast to the deep things of God, such as 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. And the word baros is burden. So bathos and baros, if you read this in the, in the Greek, it's, it's like a pun building on a play on words. But verse 25. But that which ye have already hold fast until I come. Now here we get something else that's unique. This is the first place that the second coming of Jesus Christ is alluded to by Jesus Christ in these letters. You'll discover that his second coming is expressed or implied in the last four letters, not the first three. Remember Smyrna? These people are suffering and die. He doesn't promise them being delivered from suffering. Remember? It's interesting. That's why I think the last four letters are distinctive from the first three, because the last four have in view the second coming. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. He's coming. Then you have the promise to the overcomer. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. That's straightforward enough, but... Was it power over the nations that was the goal of Jezebel? So that's what's, if you start, the more you read this letter, as you mentioned, you begin to realize what he's dealing with is in contrast to what Jezebel was after. And so as, you, as he uses particular words, you begin to realize that part of the game, we'll see as we get into this a little further, Jezebel, was temporal conquest, power over the nations. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Now these idioms are very familiar to you from Psalm 2, if you recall, and Psalm 110. And uh, this is important enough, let's pop over there. Take a look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Familiar phrase. Now, one of the things, one of the assignments you can take on, if you're inclined to, is to take Psalm 2 and figure out who's talking to whom. It's a very, very strange psalm. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
saying, let us break their bands asunder, let us cast their, away their cords from us. He who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. And on he goes. Now what you can do, your assignment, take a scratch pad, take Psalm 2 and figure out who's talking to who. There's three people talking there among themselves. And what you can do is figure out who's saying what to whom. And what you'll discover is you've got a conversation among the Trinity. Some of that's the Father, some of that's the Son, some of that's the Holy Spirit. So take a look at that sometime on your leisure. And uh, if you see that, praise God. If you don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> That'll haunt you a little bit. Yeah. And we can talk a lot about the rod of iron. It all shows up in Psalm 110, verse 2. You'll, that phrase is familiar because this passage in Psalm 110, verse 2, is quoted a lot throughout the Scripture. But let us move on. Verse 28, And I will give him the morning star. Jesus continuing his, his promise to the overcomer. And I will give him the morning star. The Son of Righteousness is an Old Testament title of Jesus Christ. The morning star is really a New Testament title. And I'll let you sort through that if you like and get our notes on the book of Malachi to get into some of that if you want. I don't want to get into it now. We've got so much else to do I want to do before we run out of time here. Then we have this interesting closing phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The first three letters, of course, as I indicated, and the last four are structured differently. See, in the first three epistles, the church was viewed as still capable of repenting. In the last four, it is apparent that only a remnant, described as the overcomer, will hear and repent. And only the last four have explicit promises of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'd like to do, one of the reasons that many of us may not appreciate the parallel between the seven letters and the history of the church is because of our ignorance of the history of the church. And so I'm going to lean on two references that are easily available that you might want to make note of. One of the references I'm going to lean on is something that's available in any Christian bookstore. It's called Haley's Bible Handbook. Henry H. Haley published in 1927, a Bible handbook that's been kept up to date. It's a marvelous gift to a friend. It's a neat little thing to have next to your Bible. But in the back of it, it also happens to have a very authoritative summary, but very thorough summary of the history of the church. And much of what I'm going to take is out of that. The second reference I'm going to give you is one of the most interesting books of our time, published recently. And I often will encourage you to read a book. I would label this one as a must-read. It's going to be required reading for you, quote, prior to Revelation 17. The title of the book is A Woman Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt. It took a lot of guts to get that book out. It took a lot of guts for Harvest House to Bob Hawkins and his gang to publish it. One of the most prestigious publishers in the country probably the most prestigious Christian publisher, and took a lot of guts for him to come out with this book. I encourage you to read it. It's very thoroughly documented. And it, its publication, I believe, gave rise to the action of the Pope on May 21st that I'll come to as we build up on this here. The first thing you and I need to understand is there are three distinct periods in church history. One of the periods is the, what I'll call the Roman Empire. 
persecution, martyrs, church fathers, the early controversies, and finally the Christianization. We get to the point where Constantine became a Christian. The emperor became a Christian. Then we have a period which we'll call the medieval period. We'll take that from that period roughly to uh, the Inquisitions, the Crusades, all of that stuff, uh, finally till the Reformation. So that period from then to the Reformation is classically called the medieval period. From about 1500 on, we have the period that most of us are perhaps more familiar with, the Reformation. Open Bibles, religious freedom, separation of church and state, all those ideas. What most people don't realize is there were at least two great cleavages in the church. Obviously, most of us are aware of the Reformation, the cleavage between the Catholics and the Protestants. That's perhaps vivid in our consciousness. There was another cleavage that most of us don't focus on unless we've done some homework. And that's the cleavage between the east and west branches of the church and the background in the ninth century, essentially. The eastern church separated from the west. The eastern church was the dominant church. Prior to that was Greek, not Latin, incidentally. And uh, it combined primitive Christianity with Greek paganism. The western church combined primitive Christianity with both Greek and Roman paganism. And, of course, then we get to the 16th century. The other major cleavage, of course, the Reformation. And that was an attempt... Incomplete, but an attempt to separate Christianity from its paganism. Now, I won't go through the whole Roman Empire. We talked about that before. It really started to rise under Julius Caesar and went through much of those uh, uh, emperors. We finally, of course, uh, get to Constantine, who took over about 306 through about 337. And, of course, by the time you get to Constantine, many, not all, ten of the Roman emperors were brutally abused the Christians. Not all of them. There were good and bad ones, but the point is there were ten specific ones. We talked about those last time. And you all know the story at the, at the evening of the, uh, the Battle of uh, Milvin Bridge, just outside Rome on August, uh, October, excuse me, October 27th, 312 A.D. Uh, he saw this vision and he won at the battle, so he issued, Constantine issued his Edict of Toleration. Constantine declared religious freedom in his empire. He became a Christian himself. At least in a, in a, people argue, I'm not saying he's born again, but he adopted Christianity as his, as his religion. And he exempted Christian ministers from taxes. He issued a, a general exhortation for all his empire to become Christians. He didn't force them to. He invited them to. And, the, of course, the Roman aristocracy persisted in their pagan traditions. Constantine got so fed up with the paganism of Rome and his inability to get himself free of paganism that he moved the empire of the world, the, 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 the headquarters of the world, to Byzantium and renamed it Constantinople. The New Rome, and uh, it became the capital of the world empire. Now, his reforms included Sunday worship, forbidding work. That was a big on Sunday. That was a big deal for slaves. He reduced slavery, gladiatorial fights. He forbid the killing of unwelcome children, and uh, crucifixion as a form of execution was abolished. So Constantine did a lot of interesting things. His successor, Julian, sometimes called Julian the Apostate, tried to restore paganism, but didn't make it. He only lasted two years, then Jovian reestablished the Christian religion. But it was Theodosius, the third successor after Constantine, that made Christianity the state religion. He forced conversions and thus filled the church with unregenerate people. And his ambition to rule, the heathenism, the pomp... All this emerges in the church under Theodosius and ruled from about 378 to about 395. There's a lot of misunderstanding. You need to understand Rome is not a factor here. The power is at Byzantium in, in Constantinople. It's interesting that Sylvester I, he was the bishop of Rome when Constantine, uh, in 3, 3, 314 to 335, 
Constantine had virtually made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine regarded himself as the head of the church, calling him, and he presided over the Council of Nicaea and all that. The bishops of Alexandria and Antioch were accorded full jurisdiction over their provinces, just as Rome was. In fact, you'll actually discover there are five patriarchs, all equal. Rome was not dominant. They were, there were five others. By the end of the fourth century, we had bishops from five primary centuries, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. These five bishops were called patriarchs, equal authority, each controlled their own province. Now, when the empire divides, there's a big cleavage, the east separates itself from the west, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexander came under and acknowledged the leadership of Constantinople, and that's when the struggle between Constantinople and Rome begins. That's The Roman church really has its beginning, in a sense, in a power sense, in 395 A.D., and, uh, and I won't take you through all of these. We'll have them in the notes with the tape. What starts to happen, there are all kinds of struggles, mostly jawboning, claiming and counterclaims and, and nothing really generic, until Rome, as the Caesars of Rome, fell. And that's when, um, free of civil authority, these fragmented kingdoms, the barbarians, the, the Pope was able to do his own deals with each one, and that's when he became, started to emerge as the commanding figure in the West. Gregory I, 590 to 604, is regarded by most as the first real pope. And there was political anarchy throughout Europe, and he was a leader. He was able to accomplish a great deal. He happens to be one of the purest and best of the popes. If his successors were as led a life like he did, the whole history might have been quite different. But he labeled unceasingly after purification of the church. He deposed neglectful or unworthy bishops. He opposed the, what they call simony, the sale of offices. You could buy, if you had money, you could buy a church office and its power and all the perks that went with it. And uh, he started to fight all that. Charlemagne comes to power, and most people don't realize that Pope, how the Pope, the guy by the name of Zacharias was instrumental in making Pepin, the father of Charlemagne, the king of the Franks. Stephen II requested Pepin to lead his army to, uh, to Italy to conquer the Lombards, which had pillaged Italy. He succeeded, and he gave a large part of central Italy to the Pope. And that was the beginning of the Papal States, where the Pope actually had lands of their own. And this temporal dominion continued for 1,100 years, until King Victor Emmanuel, in 1870, returned these lands to the Kingdom of Italy. But anyway, there's a whole history here that uh, turns out Pepin's son, he's the big hero here, Charlemagne, he was also the grandson of Charles Mattel, who stopped the Muslims from taking over Europe at, the, at his victory at the Battle of Tours in 732. His son, uh, Charlemagne, becomes one of the greatest rulers of all time, reigned 46 years, and many wars and conquests of great magnitude. His realm included what is now Germany, France, Switzerland, Austria, Hungary, Hungary Belgium, and parts of Spain and Italy. Powerful. Now, he helped the Pope, and the Pope helped him, so that, that rapport starts uh, becoming the, one of the major influences, bringing the, the papacy to a position of world power. And then uh, it goes on. But anyway, it's under Nicholas I, about 867, that he was the first uh, pope to wear a crown, by the way. About this time, 857, that a book appeared called the Isidorian Decretals. It purported to be letters and decrees of bishops and councils of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. It was centuries later that it was discovered that they were actually deliberate forgeries. They're designed to exalt the power of the Pope, stamping the papacy with the authority of antiquity, antedating the Pope's temporal power by five centuries. They are regarded by scholars as the most colossal literary fraud in history. Anyway, up till 869, all ecumenical councils 
had been held in or near Constantinople and in the Greek language. This is up till the ninth century now. Get the picture here. See, we all have this mentality. We've been sold that there's been a continuous threat, if you will, going back to Peter or whatever. No, no way. Anyway, uh, Nicholas undertook to interfere with the affairs of the Eastern Church, and he excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople, who in turn excommunicated him. And uh, so they finally have the big rift. Now, this rift became even wider when Pope Innocent II brutally treated uh, Constantinople by his own armies during the Crusades. And he also created the dogma of papal infallibility. On it goes. So, the darkest period of the papacy occurs the 200 years between Nicholas I and Gregory VII. It was called the Midnight of the Dark Ages. Bribery, corruption, immorality, bloodshed, all marked this period. I won't go through all the details. There's an interesting period from 904 to 963, which is called by historians the Rule of the Harlots. Because Sergius III, who's a pope from 904 to 911, had a mistress, Marosia. She and her mother Theodora and her sisters filled the papal chair with paramours, bastard sons, turned the papal den into a den of robbers. It's an incredible saga if you, if you want to get into all of that. And, and uh, I'll spare you that. This is, this is supposed to be a family hour. Let's keep going. Benedict VIII bought the office of pope with open bribery. Benedict IX was made a pope as 12 years old through a money bargain with powerful families that ruled Rome. He committed murders and adulteries in broad daylight, robbed pilgrims in the graves of the martyrs, a hideous criminal. People drove him out of Rome. Some call him the worst of all the popes. And the point is, and I'm not here to badger this history, you just need to understand the history is really, really grim. And it gets... Uh, in Clement II was appointed pope by Emperor Henry III of Germany because there was no Roman clergyman could be found who was free of pollution of simony or fornication, simony being the purchase of office. Hildebrand, who led the papacy into its golden age, 1049 to about 1294, he controlled five successive administrations prior to his own, but he finally becomes Gregory VII. He undertook a major reform and really cleaned house and did a lot of positive things. But uh, he was eventually driven from Rome and died in exile. But he had succeeded in making the papacy independent of imperial power. The whole game through the medieval is the struggle for papal power. Now, we get to finally to Innocent III, interesting name, uh, 1198 to 1216. He was the most powerful of all the popes. He claimed to be the vicar of Christ, the vicar of God, supreme sovereign over the church and the world. All things in earth and in heaven and in hell are subject to the vicar of Christ. The vicar of Christ is the Latin. In the the Greek, it would be the Antichrist. Antichrist meaning in place of. It's a different concept than we use the term anti, actually. Anyway, to summarize, the kings of Germany, France, England, and practically all the monarchs of Europe obeyed his will, including the Byzantine Empire. Never in history has any one man exerted more power. He ordered two crusades, decreed transubstantiation, confirmed auricular confession, declared papal infallibility, condemned the Magna Carta, forbade the reading of the Bible in the vernacular, instituted the Inquisition, ordered the extermination of heretics, and so on. More blood was shed under his direction and that of his immediate successors than in any other period of church history, except, of course, in the papacy's effort to crush the Reformation in the 16th, 17th centuries. That leads us to the whole study of the Inquisition and the Jesuits, and I won't take the time to do that, but it's incredible reading. Now, what's interesting is the Inquisition is still on the books. It's amazing to discover, as you start studying this, how much it's not ancient history. The authorities are still in the books. They're still in office for that, headed up by the most powerful man, second of the Pope, in the Vatican. 
It's interesting that Hitler was doing, he declared what he was doing is exactly what the church has been doing. And uh, he's never been excommunicated by the Catholic Church, neither Mussolini. Most of the Nazi uh, officers were spirited by, what, by a, a channel called Ratlines from Germany to South America through the Vatican offices. And you need to get into that. Uh, don't, don't, don't take my word for it. In fact, I hope you don't believe me. I hope you dig, do your own homework on this. Now, I could go on and on. This French controlled the papacy for a while. There's a fascinating period there. And, of course, you ultimately get to the Reformation period. And in the interest of time, well, let's get to uh, Leo X, 1513 to about 1521. He was pope when Luther started the Protestant Reformation. Pope Leo X was made an archbishop at, when he was eight years old. Cardinal at 13, was appointed 27 church offices uh, when he was 13, which meant he had a vast income. He appointed cardinals as young as seven. He maintained the most luxurious and licentious court in Europe. And um, he also reaffirmed the, the, the doctrine that every human being must be subject to the Roman pontiff for salvation. So these are all doctrines that are familiar to you if you've done some background on this. He issued indulgences for stipulated fees and declared the burning of heretics a divine appointment. So that was the atmosphere when, of course, Luther uh, reacted to all of that. And uh, Rome's answer, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses and then subsequently was excommunicated, Rome's answer to the, 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 the widespread popularity. See, Luther didn't really cause it, he just seemed to ignite it. The, the, the mood was already there uh, for a reaction to this suppression. And... Uh, Rome's answer to that was to institute the Inquisition and the Jesuits. And uh, that becomes the history of the medieval period. To make a long story short, we're dealing with the uh, oppression of the Church of Rome throughout that period. Now, one reason that Dave Hunt published his book, of course, is because what he felt was the most significant event in 500 years of church history, on March 29th of 1994... There was a joint declaration between the evangelicals and the Catholics together, Christian mission in the third millennium. And he raised the alarm bell, saying, now wait a minute, you mean, tell me, is there or is there not a difference between the Catholic theology and the Protestant theology? Setting aside details, justification by faith. Are the millions and millions of people that were burned at the stake, tortured to death through that period, was that for nothing? Was that a misunderstanding? Or is there a difference? It was his concern over that that caused him, that led him to publish the book. And it's for that reason I urge you to read it. The persecution of Protestants is still the official policy, but it's enforced only when their domination of the country permits. And talk to missionaries, Christian missionaries in South America, to find out more about that. What the evangelicals have done is signed apparently a truce. The idea is that the evangelicals are not to evangelize a Catholic. What are the Catholics doing? They're stepping up their evangelization of Protestants with the, the, what they call Evangelization 2000. So when you read Dave Hunt's book, and I encourage you to do that, you should read that book. I think it's basic reading for two reasons. Not just to understand the doctrinal tensions that made up most of what we consider modern history, but also so that you will understand Revelation 17 when you get there. Because what's interesting, we all know from our biblical prophetic view there's going to be a world religion. Most of us haven't read deeply enough to understand what that religion is going to look like. It ain't the new age. It's something quite different. It's interesting that the woman that rides the beast in Revelation 17 is not only guilty of the blood of the saints, it's drunk with the blood of the saints. And you really will understand that when we get into that background then.
it's the final climax of the quest for power. Don't confuse the woman with the beast. The woman rides the beast. At the end, the beast consumes the woman. She gets her, just as Jezebel did in Second Kings. Now, it's interesting, just to get ahead of the picture a little bit, but so you, so you get the flavor where we're headed. It's interesting to see how the Pope today is vigorously attempting to be the leader of the ecumenical movement. They're talking about internationalizing the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the Vatican wants to run it for them. The Vatican is having prayer meetings with snake charmers, Buddhists, all kinds. The Vatican. I thought the Catholics were so conservative. They're having prayer meetings with all comers. They're promoting ecumenicalism and they're to, on the presumption they will be the leaders of it. Now, the one thing has happened since Dave Hunt's book has been published that's worth noting. If you have a copy, you'll want to note this in the cover or get wait till you get the notes from the tapes. But I believe it was on May 21st of 1995, a very interesting event happened. And don't appreciate it unless we've gone through all the detailed history to this point, but I won't, I'll spare you, uh, you know, the time for that. On an abandoned Soviet airfield in, in Czech, the Pope was speaking to less than 100,000 people, which for that, in that kind of thing, a small crowd, uh, to canonize a particular saint. But he used the occasion to ask forgiveness for all the crimes committed by the Catholic Church since the beginning of their history. All the crimes committed and all the crimes permitted. Now, to the extent you've studied Catholic doctrine, to the extent you've studied these concepts like the infallibility of the Pope, if you, if you understand the centuries of denial where they canonize people on the basis of how many Protestants they murdered and that sort of thing, for them at this stage to acknowledge, first of all, that those were wrong is exciting. Your first reaction to all of that is that's First of all, it's a gigantic event. It's quietly done, but it's a matter of history now. They can point to that. And they've asked forgiveness for all the crimes committed or permitted by the Catholic Church against the Protestants, against the, against the world. That's very exciting. And yet, if you stand back, why would he do that? Primarily, I suggest that one of the aspects of that is that removes any implied barrier to them representing everybody. It positions the Vatican for the role that we see outlined in Revelation 17. And I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to believe that may have been motivated in part by... Dave Hunt's not the only book. It's probably the best book, the most recent book, most thorough book that you'll read, and, and I encourage you to read it uh, to get this background. But I think it's very, very exciting times. The Church at Thyatira... With, a, with an interesting promise that they will be cast into the Great Tribulation. Not the whole church. The call is to those that have not this doctrine, those that are not beset with the deep things of Satan, as they say, and so forth. I encourage you to read and reread each of the seven letters before each of our sessions. Now, by the way, if there's people of a Catholic background here, I think you're probably not unaware of the fact that Protestant commentators have had a field day with Thyatira and all that, all that we've talked about here. If Thyatira is the Catholic Church, in some sense, then the next letter is Sardis. And if the next letter is Sardis, I'll point out that Sardis is one of two letters of the seven of which nothing good is said. 
And so if any of you people of a Catholic background are catching a lot of flack from your Protestant friends about Thyatira, if Thyatira is the Catholics and Sardis is the Protestants, it would seem, and the uh, uh, letter to Sardis is one of the two letters in the collection that has no good news. And uh, we'll talk about the letter to Sardis next time, and we'll also take the darling of the bunch, Philadelphia. Anyone that's read the seven letters knows immediately, of course, that they're a member of the Philadelphia Church. (laughs) Now, I'm going to take the position, I'm going to take the position that uh, everyone has all seven in each of the churches. You say, gee, I'm not a Catholic church, there's no Thyatira of me. Study the letter carefully, really understand its meaning, and then look again. All of us tend to believe, well, we're really in Philadelphia because of all our list of reasons. No, no. All seven churches are present to some degree in all of our... That's why it's churches plural. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven letters apply to all of our churches. All seven letters apply to each of us. If we look hard and know how to look, there's some paganism in each of our lives. There's compromise with the world, surely, in each of our lives. That's maybe you say, well, it's more Pergamos than Thyatira. Well, I won't split hairs. The point is, we all have that problem daily. And that's why I encourage all of us to read all seven letters before each session. And next time we'll attempt, I think we'll have time to take two churches, uh, both Sardis and Philadelphia. And then we'll have, of course, the remaining one, Laodicea, plus some surprises. Some surprises, because once we've gone through all seven letters as basics, we can stand back and I'll show you some remarkable surprises in the scripture. So uh, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we just praise you for the time we have together. And we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you especially for this book. We thank you for the opportunity to get into it together. And Father, we do indeed claim that promise that you've promised here, that, that blessed is he, the hearer and the reader of this prophecy. So, Father, we do claim that. We pray that you would increase in each of us a hunger and an appetite for your word. And, Father, as we more keenly acquaint ourselves with your perception of the church, we would ask, Father, you would increase our discernment also of our times and our community Help us to be ever more sensitive to the need for purity of doctrine on the one hand and an increased passion and devotion for our Lord and Savior on the other. We pray, Father, you would indeed make us sensitive to those traditions, those, that background, those things that still beset us even in these days that are vestiges of the dark side. Father, we just thank you that we have time, we have time to grow in grace the knowledge of Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, you would help us to use that time to grow, to understand, and also to share your truth with those that we love. Father, we would ask that you would give us boldness and confidence and equip us Help us to be equipped to give every man a reason of the hope that is within us. But, Father, we ask all these things that indeed 
we might be more pleasing in thy sight, that we might be more responsive to your will in our lives, that we would be more focused than ever on Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.